everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Elizabeth Kirk. She is the director of the Center for Law and the Human Person at the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University. And she's also an associate scholar of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. So the reason we wanted to have you on today, and we could have done this anytime in the last few months, but we wanted to have you on to kind of talk about the world of adoption and particularly the world of adoption in the wake of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision in June. And so the first question I have for you, Elizabeth, is just thinking about the kind of legal landscape. What do you think the Dobbs decision is going to mean for adoption in this country and particularly for infant adoption in this country? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, adoption has been in the news uh, much more frequently since the Dobbs decision. The bottom line of your question, I think it'll be a sort of watch and see whether adoption will play a meaningful role vis-a-vis women's decision-making in the new post-Dobbs era. But I think one significant way in which it's already becoming part of the conversation, especially in those states where women's access to abortion is more restricted, you know, the question naturally arises how we as a community can support her and give her options. And one of those options ought to be, I would propose, adoption. Mm -hmm. And do you think that we already do that? And could we be doing it better? So I think we already do it in a sense, right? I mean, I think people talk about a woman's options as being three options. She can parent, choose abortion, or she can place her child for adoption. And those three choices are often mentioned together. But one of the things that's interesting is the fact that adoption is almost never chosen. So by a ratio of 50 to one, women who otherwise don't parent choose abortion. For every one child placed for adoption, 50 are aborted. So that makes me wonder whether adoption is, in fact, a meaningful option for women. And there's there's a little bit of social science literature trying to dig into women's decision making and try to understand that dynamic better. And that literature suggests that adoption is not considered a meaningful option by most women facing an unexpected pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's why there's been hostility from some towards adoption as the Roe v. Wade decision, Dobbs decision came down. It's almost as if adoption itself is under attack. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly what is behind that dynamic. I think the way that I've heard it articulated most is that adoption, of course, still requires the woman to continue her pregnancy. And that that itself is a sort of coercive situation. This is the way the dissent in Dobbs framed it, that the experience of going through an unwanted pregnancy is itself coercive. And so I think for those who see abortion as the, you know, the solution or the answer, adoption doesn't doesn't provide that same sort of solution. But do you think most women even who, who as you say, face an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy are even aware, for example, of many of the changes that have occurred in adoption, the level of empowerment, the the ability to choose the parents who could adopt? Because it seems like there's a big disconnect 
between the perception of adoption and the reality of what's available to empower more women? I think that's absolutely right. I think there are complex reasons why adoption is not a meaningful option, but one of them, I think, is a lack of education about contemporary adoption practices. And I would say that's that there are misconceptions in two main respects. One is that people have a sort of outdated understanding of what contemporary adoption looks like. They have they have a, a misunderstanding based on former practices, and by former, I mean 40 plus years ago, where infants were sort of whisked away, the mother had no idea where it was placed, what happened to it, everything was anonymous, everything was closed. And so, you know, that couldn't be farther from the truth about contemporary adoption practices where the adoptive or the birth mother, as you say, has a great deal of agency where she's able to choose the adoptive family that will welcome her child, where she's able to indicate the amount of contact or openness that she'd like to have with her child in the adoptive family, where there's a free exchange of not only identifying information, but health history and all sorts of things that studies show both benefit the the placing parent and also the adoptee, right, to have this kind of understanding about their identity. So that's one area, I think, where there's a real lack of education. The second is that many people conflate adoption with the foster care system. And so you hear things like, well, I don't want my child in the system, right? Or there's already too many children waiting. And that may be the case that there's many children sadly waiting foster care system to be adopted, but that's completely separate system, right? Than the private placement of a child for adoption at birth. Right. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, education is one part, it's sort of a cultural thing as well as a, maybe a policy thing. If we think about where that education could take place, maybe in schools as part of, you know, other programming about, you know, family and things like that. But I was wondering if you could sort of talk about, you know, some of the policies that you believe states could think about if they did want to either, you know, do more education around adoption or, you know, or facilitate, you know, more infant adoptions for women who are considering that. Yes. So I think to this point about education, there's many ways in which we could do a better job of educating people and promoting adoption in cultural spheres, right? You can think of just public education spaces, you know, uh, private kind of conversations and, and public awareness type campaigns. But many states require adoption to be included, adoption information as part of their sex ed programs in middle and high schools. And so that's one place in which more accurate, robust information about adoption could be included. One really great example where this is being done is in Louisiana. They, folks there in Louisiana, identified this existing law that required adoption to be included in their sex education and health education programs in middle and high schools. And they developed a curriculum called Option Hope. And it's a really beautiful curriculum that shares with young people accurate information about adoption. And so the idea there is that rather than wait until a woman is experiencing a crisis, right, in an unexpected situation where studies show she's very unlikely to even think about adoption, Mm -hmm. you're creating a culture in which accurate information about adoption exists and is presented in a positive way so that if and when that young person or one of their friends or family members is in that situation, adoption will come to mind as a more realistic possibility. 
Mm. Wow, I run and have run <laughs> middle schools for the last decade and just launched a new high school network. I have never, in New York, so I've never heard of that requirement to incorporate adoption as an option. That's fascinating. So as I said, yeah, I mean, it's not in every state explicitly. It is in some. and and But I think you know, the point there is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a law that's passed. If there's already an existing curriculum, right, that encompasses family planning and things like that, that it, you know, yeah. working at the policy level with an agency to include a module about adoption is a kind of low hanging fruit, an easier way to start having the conversation in schools. That is excellent. So, Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you, a lot of the conversation that policymakers, you know, particularly conservatives and Republicans wanted to have after Dobbs in terms of adoption was around things like adoption tax credits. You know, those are credits for families who are doing the adoption. But it sounds like a lot of the the policies that you're thinking about and the kind of culture that you're thinking about is more around the birth mothers who are making these decisions. Do you think that that's where we need to focus our attention or should we be trying to make it easier for adoptive parents to do adoptions? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think the adoption credit is a good thing because I think first and foremost, it expresses as a public policy matter that we think adoption is a social good Mm -hmm. and we want to support and promote it. And the reality is that, you know, private adoption is, is very expensive. And so to make it more possible for diverse, you know, adoptive families to consider welcoming a child, I think is a good thing. But I think it's not really getting at the problem, right, which is that women don't consider it as a meaningful option. It's sort of downstream. It may indirectly benefit a birth mom, especially if her expenses can be taken care of, or, if, you know, if she can be supported in a, a meaningful financial way it can, the tax credit can indirectly help that. But I think the kinds of policies that would really move the needle are the ones that would improve uh, options counseling. So across the board, the people that come into contact with women who are making these decisions, whether in Planned Parenthood clinics, whether in pregnancy resource centers, whether in hospitals, whether in social work settings, across the board, across the ideological spectrum, people don't know how to do options counseling well. And in particular, they don't know how to speak about adoption. And so I think any kind of funding for developing programs that teach options counseling that would include accurate, robust information about adoption would really be very important. There was a program that did this in the 90s, funded at the federal level. It's it's now defunct, but it's it, it could be a sort of model. It was called the Infant Adoption Awareness training program. I, I may have that wrong, but that, that was the gist of it. That was a federally funded program? It was a federally funded program. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, the, here we are 30 years later. I mean, there's more information about women's decision making, probably better understanding of what that options counseling should look like. So I think revisiting a program like that and supporting it with our tax dollars would be a good thing, whether at the federal or at the state level. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I think would be helpful to fund is support programs for ber- placing birth parents. So adoption, you know, isn't this sort of transactional experience. It's not a one and done thing, right? It's something that as an adoptive parent myself, I like to emphasize is a connection for a lifetime, right? With two families through through their child. 
And so I think wrapping around birth mothers with counseling post-placement would be another way of prioritizing, you know, this as a meaningful choice for women. Right. Are, are there any states that you think have the right portfolio of policies that are amenable to adoption? Are there some, like in the charter school world, there's some states that are doing great work around educational freedom, like Arizona. Are there any other models that you think we should be looking to certain to certain states? So I think I don't have a sort of 50 state scorecard of states and how promoting adoption. You know, one state that I've had experience with, I've already mentioned Louisiana, I think they're doing this in a number of fronts. They're I already mentioned the education option hope, yep. option hope curriculum that they devised. Also, they enhanced their informed consent law. So this is the law, this is the law that would govern the informed consent materials that women who are seeking an abortion would receive. And of course, when you have any kind of procedure, you know, as part of informed consent, you are entitled to know what your alternatives are. And in most places, that just includes information about parenting. So, you know, you should know that the father is liable for child support, and you should know that here's the state agencies that could help you if you choose to continue your pregnancy and parent. But very, very few laws require any information to to be included about the option of adoption. And so Louisiana revised their informed consent law and also created a really great website on the Department of Health's landing page all about adoption as an option. Arizona recently model or copied that as a model has done the same thing. So I think that's, again, a sort of pedagogical thing that can be done to teach people that this is something we as a society hold out as a positive choice. But, you know, it it hasn't been adopted widely around the country. What about religious institutions? So you're at Catholic University. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, there's a huge, you know, religious support of the pro-life movement. Do you think that the churches around the country are sort of prepared for the post-Dobbs world, you know, uh, crisis pregnancy centers, like, you know, if there is some, you know, even small influx of women who are now, now consider adoption, you know, as a result of changes to laws on abortion, is the country sort of prepared for that on a kind of community level? I think so. I mean, I think, of course, we can always do more and we can always be more mindful of the vulnerable in our communities. And I think, you know, one thing that I I mean, coming from the Catholic tradition, I think one thing we can often be guilty of because we are international, you know, church, we can sort of think, well, I I wrote my check right to Catholic charities and and therefore I've kind of checked the box of, of helping, you know, the vulnerable. And I think we as Catholics can do a better job of being mindful of the vulnerable right in our own community. Certainly think that. But I think in general, I think faith based providers foster care and adoption services have been doing this for a very long time, right? They really pioneered child welfare in this country. I think a lot of attention was brought to the important work that they do during the run-up to the Fulton decision involving the city of Philadelphia and Catholic social services there. So I think there's a great awareness of the ways in which churches uh, can and should wrap around women who are in crisis, who to welcome them, to practice, you know, what's called radical hospitality. That's a phrase that Pope Francis has used. And adoption is seen as a sort of way of, of practicing that radical hospitality, that you're welcoming the child, 
not only as, you know, the biblical injunction to welcome the stranger, but to, you're welcoming that child as, as your son or daughter, right? There's no more real radical expression of that kind of hospitality than adoption. And so I think churches and faith-based institutions are adequately situated to provide that kind of help. And I, I think they understand that they need to do it in a more significant way post-Dobbs. Well, final question for me. I mean, it has not always been the case that ad- adoption has been the the last choice when young women face these challenging decisions. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, adoption, you know, there was it, the hierarchy was different in terms of the choices. Just share with our, our listeners, what do you think have been the biggest factors that caused adoption to sort of really descend as a choice? And what does need to be done more broadly? You mentioned campaigns briefly, but what would help to shift to more normalize infant adoption as something that is not under attack, that is actually seen as a very beautiful and empowering option for women to choose? The million dollar question, and it's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. I mean, I think before Roe, you're right that more women did choose adoption. The number was around 9%. Now it's it's less than, you know, it's a fraction of a percent. Uh, less than 20,000 infants are placed for adoption each year compared to 3.6 million live births, nearly a million abortions, less than 20,000 infants are placed for adoption. So it's so small, the statistic is to be almost negligible. You know, how to, to work back from that, I think much of it has to be in the culture. I think the, even the way that we speak about adoption, I mean, frequently I hear people, even in the adoption, you know, conversation who very much think highly of adoption, say things like give up my baby, you know, give up a baby for adoption. I think, you know, just ha- being mindful of language, you know, that a woman places her child for adoption, that she makes an adoption plan, emphasizing that agency and empowerment that she has. I think also, this is something I speak a lot about with adoptive parents is really making sure that we never objectify birth mothers as a means to a child. Adoption is not, as I understand adoption properly, it's not a way of getting children to infertile couples, for example. You know, adoption is providing a home for a child that lacks one. And I think that we have to see adoption as something that's a ministry to the birth families as well as to the children, right? So this is not yeah. something we want to objectify them as a means to yeah. getting a baby. So all those kinds of ways in which we can speak about, you know, avoiding language like abandoning, you know, there's this abandonment narrative. Women think that, you know, that placing a child for adoption is an act of abandonment and they could never abandon their child. So they would prefer to choose abortion. That's a very common sentiment that's expressed. I think we need to do more to say that placing a child for adoption is the sort of thing a good mother does, right? She puts the good of her child um, first, right? It's the farthest thing from an act of abandonment. So I think, you know, language, culture, those are all important, but then, you know, making sure that we prioritize getting it right. You know, if there's social science data that we need to better understand women's decision-making, we should fund that and do it. People like me should do an adoption scorecard to make make sure. Um, <laughs> we didn't mean you know, to send that, you home with more work. I well, know, but, you know, well. I mean, the, 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 there's a whole like to do list, right, of ways that we can better understand the lay of the land so that our policies and laws can better respond to the gaps that exist and and try to build that foundation. Right. Yeah. 
Andy. All right. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth Kirk. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can a get very episodes. One. What? A very hopeful one. I, I, I agree. I agree. We're we're less down on things than we usually are. <laughs> Must be Friday. Um, anyway, so you can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you so Thank much, you. Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. 